If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Before we get started, we want to tell you a bit about the sponsor of this week's History Extra podcast, Warner Hotels. If you're looking to escape to a picturesque corner of the UK for a few days, Warner Hotels has just the thing for you. Each hotel offers everything you could possibly need for the perfect weekend away. From unrivaled leisure facilities and inspiring live entertainment to delicious dining experiences and plenty of history for you to uncover. If this sounds like your kind of getaway, Warner Hotels is now offering a series of exciting weekend packages in 2024. Each three-night stay is at one of three historic hotels, with dinner, bed and breakfast included, plus a whole itinerary of fascinating talks and Q&As with a selection of BBC history experts, such as Tracy Borman, Susanna Lipscomb and James Holland. So what are you waiting for? Book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, I'm going to whisper some things to you now about Crunch Chocolate Bars. Because apparently this whispering thing is a thing that makes you feel things. It's saying something crunchy is coming in the candy wrapper language. Mm. Imagine your tongue hiking up those crispy, rocky ridges. Now, drum roll, please. Wow, that's good. Crunchy munchy chocolate doesn't whisper. Turn up the fun with Crunch. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today we're going to be talking about werewolves and in particular, their presence in the myths and legends of the ancient world. Werewolves are, of course, one of the mainstays of horror fiction in the modern day. But you might be surprised to learn just how far back the creature's origins stretch. Professor Daniel Ogden of Exeter University has just written a book on the ancient werewolf, and he was joined in conversation by BBC History magazine editor Rob Attar. Daniel, in the introduction to your book, you write that if a jobbing classicist were to compile a list of good ancient werewolf stories, there would essentially only be one. 
And now I realise you go on to challenge that notion within the book, but as a way into this story, I wonder if you could summarise that story by Petronius. Well, uh, the story is told by a nouveau riche and rather uh, tasteless uh, freedman, former slave, at a, a dinner party of a group of similar people, part of Petronius's dinner of Trimalchio. And Nicaros tells the story about when he was, pre- he was previously a slave, he had a girlfriend, this is uh, somewhere in, in Campania, in uh, southern Italy. He had a, a girlfriend uh, who obviously lived um, a certain number of miles away. We're not, we're not really given details about the, uh, the, the, the locations. Um, and he decided to go and visit her one night. A soldier was lodging uh, with, his, uh, with his master uh, and agreed to come along for the journey. So there, there they were, uh, proceeding down the road. And it was one of those uh, roads that the, uh, the Romans used to have lined with tombs. And at, at a certain point, the soldier stops. Initially, it seems to take a pee against one of the tombstones. And our narrator, Nicaros, uh, suddenly realises that he's taken all his clothes off and made them into a little pile. He's peed around them in a circle and turned into a wolf and run off. <laughs> he goes to the clothes and finds that they've been turned to, magically turned to stone. He's terrified. He imagines himself to be surrounded by ghosts on all sides. All sides. Anybody, he makes his way um, over to his girlfriend's house, which is uh, both a pub and a farm, it seems rather oddly. And she tells him that she wished he'd come earlier because um, a wolf had just got in and was, uh, was uh, butchering the sheep. But one of their own slaves had managed to drive a, a spear through its neck and that had, that had seen it off. The next morning, um, he returns home terrified. When he gets to the, uh, the point in, in amongst the tombstones where the clothes had been, the clothes have gone, but there's blood. And when he finally makes it home, he finds a soldier in bed uh, with a doctor tending his neck wound. And he realises, only at that stage, surprisingly, he, he realises that the soldier is a werewolf um, and he refuses ever to break bread with him again. Okay, so that, this is a, a really, really powerful, really almost sounds quite a modern story of a werewolf, actually. So Very modern, yes. And, and I guess the, our listeners' understanding of werewolf legends probably only really go back, well, they may be modern, but probably only go back as far as perhaps the medieval era. So is what you're doing in this book quite, quite revelatory, actually, that you're taking the werewolf story a lot further back than people probably understand them to go? Yes, well, I suppose you know people familiar with classical literature will be aware of this particular werewolf story. Um, again, Petronius is one of the major Latin authors. I don't suppose it has much much of a breakout factor beyond, as it were, uh, beyond uh, the classics realm. Yeah, the, the point is rather this: we hear about werewolves in scattered sources from the ancient world up until Augustine, around about four hundred A.D., and from that point on, there's pretty much silence until the twelfth century. And then in the 12th century, particularly in French and Anglo-French, and actually also in Norse literature, werewolves just burst out at us all over. And from that point on, it's been a continuous tradition until today. So the question is, what's going on in those, those, uh, those 800 years, as it were, well, 700 years of silence? Now, um, there are two possible um, answers to that. With the, the French and Anglo-French literature, one could say well, these chaps are just reading Petronius uh, and they're, they're bringing, it, bringing that stuff to life again and reincorporating the werewolf story into their own culture, into their own times. Um, that doesn't really work for the Norse werewolf, however. But it does seem to me that if you look very carefully at the, the incidental details in the Petronius story and some other ancient werewolf stories, 
on the on the other hand, in the, the medieval stories, you can see that what we have here is not uh, the uh, the medieval writers going back and sort of borrowing the werewolf in a sort of very literate fashion. Rather, what we have is a continuous tradition of folklore, and this is popping up into, as it were, up into higher literature in the ancient world, and then going underground. <laughs> for 700 years and then popping back up again in the medieval period and uh and so i think i think that's i think that's fascinating so there is this there is this continuity this secret underground continuity and i think i think that is quite an, quite an important um thing to be able to establish so beyond petronius what do you see as the other really important ancient texts for giving us this idea of werewolves well uh herodotus is talking about a Scythian people kind of kind of Russian people called the Nuri, who um, are said to um, be sorcerers and change themselves into wolves every so often. He doesn't give any, give any more context, unfortunately, but the idea is well established there already in, in the, this classical um, Greek historian, 5th century. We have a lot of werewolves in the, well, a lot of, a lot of glancing references, I should say, to werewolves in the, the, the main Latin poets of the so-called Golden Age and Silver Age. So basically, the, the the first century, the first century AD poets, the familiar people, Virgil, um, Ovid, people like that, Propertius. We have a great story in the Pausanias, Pausanias, who wrote the Guide to Greece in the second century AD. We have the story of the, the hero of Temessa, who is described as a, as a sort of ghost in a in a wolf skin. Uh, we have a nice story in, in Aesop about a thief who pretends to be a werewolf in order to, to frighten people away from their stuff so that she can steal it. We also have in Pliny, Pliny the uh, the Elder, so about the, the mid middle of the first century AD, we have a nice story about uh, an athlete, uh, a, great, a great Olympic victor who before that had spent a, spent a period of time as a werewolf. So I think that that's, that gives you that gives you a, a, a selection. There are there are other obviously there are there are many other texts we can uh, we could point to. And, and, and I mentioned Augustine, of course, at the end the end of that tradition. And through these texts, are there any common features we can see, or are, do they all describe these creatures quite differently? There is a great deal of diversity, but there are some common features indeed. I think the single most striking one is, you might say, the phrase "into the woods." Almost universally. When, when, when a werewolf is when a man changes himself into a wolf or is changed into a wolf we're told and he ran off into into the woods occasionally it's the other way around he ran off into the woods and became a wolf so and that that has a of course that has a very striking contemporary uh, resonance and um, you may be familiar with the um the Stephen Sondheim musical pulling together stuff from the i think it's from the the the, the Grimm's the Grimm's tales isn't it uh, but anyway, certainly good, good uh, folktale, fairy tale stuff, and that is actually entitled "Into the Woods." That's a very um, common, recurring theme, and that that actually is, it seems that that little phrase highlights perhaps the key point about the ancient werewolf. It's not a creature full of meaning, really. It's a, it's a, I'd say it was a form rather than a meaning, a form onto which meanings can be um, imposed. But one thing that is fairly constant is that that opposition, that confrontation, that transition between the civilized world of man and the wild world of the the animals or, or, or the woods. Um, so that 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 sort of seems to be sort of inherent to the concept. There are there are other themes as well, and I suppose the next thing I would point to is the theme of the inside and the outside. The idea is that a werewolf is one creature inside another, 
often it's basically, and I think usually, it's a, a wolf inside a man. And so the, so the werewolf's sort of outer carapace is, is human form, but that human form is also rather confusingly identified with his clothing. But then, then that, that, that does sort of make sense because the clothing is, as it were, you, know, as it were, you might say, the, what distinguishes a man from an animal, the, the symbol of a man's civilization. When a werewolf takes his clothes off, as, as just as in the Petronius story that I, that I summarised, he takes off his outer human form and the wolf, as it were, is released from within. But I say there are other ways of thinking about it. And uh, when I, I also referred in passing to um, Pausanias's story of the, the hero of Temesa, and that werewolf is described as a ghost in a wolf skin. So for what's left of the human form, the ghost is on the inside and the, and the, wolf, the wolf is on the outside in, in, in that context. One can think about inside and outside in other ways as well. In some contexts, people are uh, imagined to become wolves by, through cannibalism. Um, as it were, so you take the human flesh inside inside you, which is what a wolf should do. You become a wolf, but and, and conversely, also werewolves in wolf form can become humans by eating wolf parts. Strangely, so the, the, that that notion of the inside and the outside is played about with quite a lot in in ancient literature. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So I think strangely, werewolves are wolves because. Wolves themselves are, in a sense, already werewolves. They, they themselves already embody those two, those two qualities of the wildness and civilizedness. Time for another quick chat about this week's sponsor, Warner Hotels. If you want to get away in 2024, why not book a weekend package at one of Warner's most historic hotels? There's Little Coat House, which is a stunning Tudor manor in Hungerford. Studley Castle, a beautiful 19th century building in Warwickshire. Or Home Lacey, a huge Herefordshire mansion that was once visited by Charles I. Whichever location you choose, you'll be able to enjoy a whole weekend of live talks from your favourite historians during your stay. Find out more and book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. 
Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. Do we have a sense of why wolves in particular? I mean, I guess there were other legends of shape-shifting to other animals. What, what did the transformation to a wolf specifically say? Well, this is a question, of course, that's bigger than classical antiquity, just as the werewolf is bigger than classical antiquity. In classical antiquity itself, you're right. I mean, uh, anybody who's familiar with Ovid's Metamorphoses, of course, will know that people are changing to all sorts of creatures, all sorts of plants even, all over the place in Greek myth. But nonetheless, outside that particular realm, when we move more into sort of what you might call a sort of a folkloric area, the wolf does seem to be, as it were, the animal of choice for transformation, as in other cultures. I would have two things to say about this, maybe three. Uh, the wolf uh, is a useful animal simply because it, it does uh, easily convey, the, as it were, that wildness and savageness, that opposite pole to civilization. And so that's a good reason for choosing, a, as it were, a wolf to be the animal of, of, the animal of transformation. Another reason is that I suppose that, I mean, I mean, there are loads of, you know, very wild, very savage creatures out there. Another, but another reason is perhaps that wolves are roughly ballpark sort of human-sized, or at least you know one can one can imagine a sort of an easy transition between a, between a, a wolf body and a, and a human body in terms of in terms of size. I mean, the other the other creature that sort of gets uh, focused upon again in in the Euro, wider European tradition for, for transformation uh, is the bear. In in I mentioned Norse culture briefly, alongside werewolves. In Norse culture, you also get werebears. Um, and again, I would say, you know, that again, there's something sort of human in size uh, and indeed even in sort of, you might say, um, configuration about a bear. So that, I think that, that is significant. However, to go back to wolves, I think actually, paradoxically, although the wildness is so important in choosing the animal, I think wolves are chosen also because they in themselves strangely embody these two qualities of the wildness, the savagery, but also the civilization. Because, again, I'm, I'm sure we've all seen the documentaries now about, about wolf packs, and these are very ordered, very cooperative, um, very collaborative societies. And the ancients, the ancients, by the way, were aware of that too. It's important to note. And, of course, it's the, sort of the, 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 a wolf's ability to collaborate and cooperate and be part of a community that, of course, that, that allowed the wolf to give us the dog, which we integrate into, into our own community. So I think, strangely, werewolves are wolves because wolves themselves are, in a sense, already werewolves. They, they themselves already embody those two, those two qualities of the wildness and civilizedness. And is there any relevance to the fact that there are quite a lot of other ancient myths involving wolves, not necessarily shape-shifting wolves, you know, something like Romulus or Remus? Does that figure into this at all? I'm going to say it depends on the myth, really. I don't think that the Romulus and Remus myth is is part of the story of the of the werewolves. But I suppose you could you could say that in the figure of the mother wolf, there you do have those those two qualities again, as it were. So the the, the twins are sort of cast out into the wild into the wilderness, into ultimate peril, into into the world of wildness. Hence hence the wolf comes along, but of course she is a very <laughs> tame, civilized, nurturing wolf. So, so she. So, so, I suppose we do get those two ideas woven together there in, in that myth as well. I suppose that there are there are other myths of uh, involving wolves which are more tightly involved with 
with werewolves or, is, or, or, or akin to werewolves. So we have the myth of Lycaon, who starts off being a man and is transformed into a wolf by Zeus because he tries to feed him human flesh in a, in a, in a sacrifice. And people have said, well, you know, just because he's turned into a wolf in a, in a one-off act like that, that doesn't make him a werewolf. And, well, maybe, maybe, maybe that's right. Uh, but certainly the ideas of, as it were, civilization and wildness, um, and of course cannibalism, um, are, are, are in play there. And the myth of Lycaon, whether or not he's a werewolf in himself, is actually tied in with ideas of werewolfism because the Lycaon myth is a sort of like the foundation myth for um, a complex of cults that took place on Mount Lycaon um, in Arcadia. And the notion of werewolfism was strongly integrated into those, into those cults because at the, the big sacrifice every year, some young men would uh, take their clothes off, hang them on a tree, swim across a, a pond uh, and be transformed into wolves and, and live as wolves for a certain period of time. And if they didn't eat anybody um, during their times as wolves, they would return eventually back across the pond, recover their clothes from the tree and become human again. So that's a nice sort of cultic expression of werewolfism. And again, of course, the clothes are identified with the human carapace. And when they're removed, as it were, the wolf within is, is, is released um, there. So I, I guess nowadays, in terms of literature, film, TV, the werewolf is in the same kind of sphere as things like vampires, ghosts, witches, demons... Was that the case then? Did in the ancient world did did these creatures also inhabit this same kind of world? Um, that's a really good question, and there are there's several ways to approach it. As I've mentioned, I think already, the werewolf is above all a creature of folklore. So we can imagine, I think, that this, this, the context in which werewolf stories were typically told were sort of like you know campfire horror story contexts. We started with Petronius. The tale that's told at the dinner party by Nicaros, the werewolf story there, is told as part of a sort of a competitive pair of stories with a story told by Trimalchio himself. And that's a story about, you could call them sort of vampire witches, Striges, Strix witch. Um, and, uh, these, uh, and these witches were told, and this is a wonderful story too, we're told about how we have a house a baby boy in the house has died and is sort of laid out ready for burial the next day. And the, but the witches attack and they trick their way into the house invisibly, it seems. They have that, that ability and, uh, and they're able to sort of steal and devour the baby's body. It's a wonderful story, rather be better than I've told it, to be honest. So just from that pair of stories alone, you, you, we get the sense that the, 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 the werewolf stories exist in a world of stories of that sort. Now, you mentioned you mentioned vampires. That's one of the one of the big questions, really, is to what extent the ancient world had a concept of a vampire. So, in some ways, the Strix witch is the is the closest, perhaps, to a to a to a, to a vampire. But um, I have mentioned already that we have living werewolves, but we also have dead werewolves. Dead people can can manifest themselves as wolves. So I mentioned the hero of Temesa. This chap seemingly is given an annual tribute and comes along and devours um, a virgin girl uh, from the city of Temesa every year. So he's kind of vampirish, I suppose, that he's, he's dead and he's a werewolf and he eats people. It's really a sort of medieval development um, in the Balkans, this, this, this notion of the Vrikolakas, who's a sort of a staple of uh, Serbian culture and Greek culture, Bulgarian culture, I think, um, so really all, all that area. 
And the recoil cast is, is basically variously conceptualised, either as a werewolf or as a vampire. It's sort of it's sort of one thing, but both things at the same time. I think that's that's uh, that's really the point at which, as it were, those two those two concepts get get melded together for us. So yeah, so again, to uh, just to, to leap leap forward a long way. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the Underworld movies of recent years, but uh, and, and the, these these movies construct quite an interesting mythos actually, where you have basically you know the, the vampires on the one side and the werewolves on the other, a sort of equal and opposite peoples who are sort of in some sort of constant war with each other. That's a nice idea, which does actually, which some, some people might find odd when first encountering it, but actually, in many ways, really does does pay tribute to the, as it were, the, the deep uh, mythology and traditions of werewolves and vampires there. Now, are there any instances in the ancient world of werewolves not being a negative force, but actually being either an ambivalent or a positive creature? In the ancient world, I'm struggling. No, I can't call to mind a clear example of that i think uh, we have to wait for the as it were the medieval stuff and, and indeed the earliest medieval stuff um to get to get that um so again i mean the, the, mo- the most famous early medieval uh, werewolf uh, is would be bisclavere in the, the lay of that name by marie de france again he's a he's a good guy who is turned into a werewolf and lives as a very honorable wolf he is a werewolf um, by nature, it's not explained why, and he has to run off into the woods every so often and become a wolf. There's that. There's that concept again. And when his wife finds out about this, um, she's horrified, and she learns that um, he has. He turns his, takes his clothes off. Here we are again. This this same imagery, hides them under a stone, and then becomes a wolf for a few days, and then recovers them and, and comes back to comes back to the human world. But his wife, with her lover having learned this, steals his clothes and so leaves him, tra- leaves him trapped as a wolf. And so he lives in, in this way for many years. Actually um, happens upon a benign king and becomes the, 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 the treasured pet, the valued pet of the king. Um, and then when, uh, when uh, one day uh, his wife turns up, his former wife turns up at court, now married to her, her lover, he attacks her. And when the, uh, when the king investigates the, the context of all this, all is revealed, uh, and eventually, uh, Bisclavery's clothes are returned to him, and uh, and uh, he he recovers his human form. Now, was there any connection at this stage between the condition known as lycanthropy and werewolves? Right. Well, today we use lycanthropy just as a posh a posh word for werewolfism, I suppose. The word is an ancient Greek word, lycanthropia, uh, which means wolf, human. Ism, I suppose, in its in its in its in its elements, but in the ancient world, this term is confined to a supposed medical condition, and the way the way people um, suffering from lycanthropy are described is that they're described as becoming listless, rolling around amongst tombs in cemeteries. Again, that 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 tomb connection, that ghostly connection. There doesn't seem to be anything about physical transformation or growing hair. Um, and it's rather curious as to as to why why the, the wolf imagery should be applied to them. The, that ghostly connection aside, but there we are. So that but that's 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 ancient lycanthropy. Uh, and again, there's a, there's a very strong tradition in the in the ancient medical writers, Greek and Latin, about that. The word lycanthropy and, and lycanthrope, like leucanthropos, that only becomes that only comes to be applied to what we would call real werewolves in the sort of in the Byzantine, in Byzantine period, mid central Byzantine period. Yeah. 
finally, do you think it's time that these ancient werewolves were introduced more into popular culture? Should the next big werewolf movie be set in ancient Rome or something? Well, there's no reason it shouldn't it shouldn't be, is there? Yes, sorry, I don't know if I have a lot to say about that. I mean, yes, the the, the Petronius story is great, but it's it's quite a short story. You need you need a lot of you need a lot of fleshing out. But yes, why not? Why not? I mean, the ancient the ancient world is uh, always a great context. Well, for for, for for narratives of any kind, isn't it? That was Professor Daniel Ogden. His book, The Werewolf in the Ancient World is out now, published by Oxford University Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tomorrow, Peter Stottard will be talking about the assassins of Julius Caesar. Before you go, one final word about this week's sponsor, Warner Hotels. If you fancy a break in 2024, you can now choose from three fantastic weekend packages at some of the most historic Warner hotels. For instance, Littlecote House is set in a stunning location in Hungerford, which has played host to Romans, a civil war army and the planning of the D-Day landings. Meanwhile, Studley Castle in Warwickshire was used as a training camp for the Women's Land Army during the World Wars. Find out more and book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk.